So 2 Kings chapter 14, and as you're turning there, uh, we, we've, hit a, we've hit another uh, place that we need to stop and just take stock of, of, of where we are in the Old Testament. 39 books of the Old Testament uh, are typically separated into three different sections in Hebrew. Uh, and they, the way that the Hebrew people taught this to their kids was that they uh, would teach them the word Tanakh. So everybody say Tanakh. Tanakh, okay, so you're Hebrew speakers now, okay. So the first, the T-A stood for Torah, right, Torah, which uh, basically stands for teaching or instruction. Uh, that was uh, typically what you, when you hear about uh, the Old Testament, somebody saying about the law, right, they might say the law and the prophets, uh, this is where they get that from. The law was the Torah. The first five books of Moses, which in Greek was called the Pentateuch. Well, then skip to the K. Uh, that's the Ketuvim. The Ketuvim is what we call the writings, what they call the writings that consisted of the history books, such as Samuel, Kings, uh, Judges, and Ruth, and the wisdom books as well. And then today, we're actually beginning to dive into the center section right here called the Nevi'im, which are the prophets. So when so, for instance, this has bearing on us uh, because when Jesus stood on the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration, who was with him besides the disciples? Who appeared? What Old Testament characters appeared? Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, and Jesus standing there as the fulfillment of both of them. Right? And so, the law and the prophets... That, uh, that paradigm is ingrained in the Hebrew mindset when looking at the Old Testament. So you, because you have the law, the prophets, and the writings. And that's what, where we get the word Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K. And so today, as we dive into this Nevi'im section, these prophets, we want to understand a distinction here. And this writing, it's, uh, our projector's kind of light on the contrast here, but, uh, but I'll explain this to you. Basically, when you're looking at the prophets... There's a distinction even within the Hebrew Bible that talks about major prophets versus minor prophets. Major prophets versus minor prophets. Now this has nothing to do with the importance of their message or the quality or value of the prophet as, a, uh, as the voice of God to Israel at that specific moment in time. All major and minor refers to is the quantity of words that we have recorded. And so your major prophets, there's five of them, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, and Daniel are, four, are the four, four of the major prophets. And then you have 12 minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And so you remember, we talked about last week that the role of the Old Testament prophets was to speak the word of God to the people of God or to, to, to the, the people whom God wanted to receive that message, they were supposed to speak a specific message to a specific people at a specific time and a specific place. So anytime you jump into the prophets in the Old Testament, you need to know who is this prophet, who are the people he's speaking to, what message is he speaking to them, and why was he speaking that message at this time? Those are four major questions that you need to ask as, uh, as you study the prophets. And so those are going to be the four major questions that we ask as we're studying the prophets. And now obviously, it'll be a little bit harder when we do some of these major prophets, like Isaiah, because in the 60 plus chapters that are in Isaiah, he had a lot of different people that he was speaking to. There were a lot of different reasons he was speaking to them. And so we, we're gonna have a, a, a little bit 
uh, lesser time to focus on uh, all of the specific contexts in Isaiah, but as we get to the four chapters of Jonah this morning, it's a lot easier, except that Jonah doesn't follow that paradigm. Because in the book of Jonah, we don't have just the words of Jonah. What we have is a story about a prophet. You see, the major and minor prophets, typically you have just the words of the prophet recorded. But in Jonah, which is the reason we're starting in Jonah, you have a story about a prophet. And this also follows in the chronology uh, that, we, uh, that we have been following along the Old Testament with. And so that's why I had you turn to 2 Kings chapter 14. Because 2 Kings chapter 13, uh, you can read the subheading in your Bible, uh, the death of Elisha, right? The death of Elisha. You know, now remember that the, the northern kingdom of Israel, you have this, the northern and the southern kingdom. We looked at that division last week. And you have Elijah and Elisha who are preaching or prophesying to the northern kingdom. Well, Elisha dies. And we said last week, God is not going to let himself be without a voice. He raises up these prophets. And so one of the prophets that we read about that he raised up was a prophet named Jonah. Look in uh, verse 25 of 2 Kings chapter 14. This is in the, uh, in the reign of Jeroboam II. And he basically goes and he says, uh, uh, Jonah... Uh, Arises, It says he, being Jeroboam, restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. And so from the very outset of this book, we're going to ask some questions because these questions are, will guide us through the next few minutes of our time together. First of all, uh, we want to ask, who is Jonah? Why was Jonah... Uh, going to prophesy to the Ninevites that God called him to prophesy to to them. Uh, why was he calling God? Uh, why was God calling Jonah to go prophesy? And why was Jonah resistant? But first, before we do that, it's it's going to be really important for us to remember the reason that God uh, raised these prophets up. Now, if you remember from Genesis chapter twelve, the entire reason, the entire reason that God made his covenant with Abraham is so that he could bless Abraham's family so that they could in turn be a blessing to the nations. The blessing of God was what was lost when sin entered the world. And so as the people of Israel, as they begin to travel throughout the, uh, as they begin to travel throughout the land of Canaan, uh, conquering the tribes of Canaan, as they begin to go and be established there in Canaan, the whole purpose that they are there for is so that they can be a light to the nations, but they failed miserably. They, they became consumed with sin and consumed with self. And because of that, because of that, God raised these prophets up to say, you guys aren't living by the covenant. God gave you this covenant so that you could be transformed, so that, so that you could be shaped into a people of justice and a people who, who tell a message of peace and, and people who invite other nations to come and submit themselves to the authority of God. But sin always separates you from the purpose of God, right? And so sin separated Israel from the purpose that God had established Israel to fulfill. And therefore the prophets rose up and called Israel out on it. And Jonah, as we're going to see today, is a microcosm of where Israel is as a people. Now, 
we're not as familiar with the true story of Jonah as I think we are. So let's jump in and let's see how we uh, might have the VeggieTales version in mind uh, more than the real version. So let's go to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, which is, uh, is after the book of Obadiah and before the book of Micah. And do not be ashamed, no matter how long you've been coming to church, uh, to go to the table of contents and just look up the page number. Because uh, this is one of those, I literally, I've got a new Bible, and so I searched for it for a good five minutes before I broke down and finally went to the table of contents and found that it was on page 865 in my Bible. Uh, so, anyway, Jonah chapter 1. It's just four short chapters. It takes, I, I, I timed it, it, it takes about five and a half minutes to read uh, if you're just reading from start to finish. But we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 1. Now we've already seen Jonah was a prophet to Jeroboam II. We'll learn more about him in a second. Uh, but Jonah 1.1 introduces us to Jonah here in the book that's named after him. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, so we're talking about the same guy, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So, remember the state of Israel at this time. Jeroboam II is the ruler of, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And just to recap a little bit, because this is so important going into the prophets. After Solomon, Solomon's son Rehoboam arose to be the king of Israel, right? Well, people didn't like Rehoboam, and so a guy named Jeroboam, uh, which is kind of tough to remember, but Jeroboam rose up and he began to lead a rebellion. So the ten tribes to the north became the Yankee Israelites, right? And the two tribes to the south became the redneck for our in our terminology, the redneck uh, Israelites, right? So you had what they were called as the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, okay? And in the Davidic line, or the, the line of David and Solomon, uh, still reigned in the south. And so, but up here you had Jeroboam as the original king, and then because the Hebrew people just loved renaming their kids after the same people, uh, you had Jeroboam II, who was the second king. And Jeroboam II and Jeroboam I were not related. I guess it was kind of like the popes, right? You know, you get Pope Francis I and II and III and IV. Anyway, but it, all that to say, so Jeroboam II was a king, uh, the king in the northern kingdom of Israel. A very wicked guy. And yet the people of the Lord, just as, as they often did throughout the Old Testament, they cried out to the Lord because they were in great oppression from the, from the people in the land of Canaan. And God used... The words of Jonah to encourage Jeroboam II to go and to, to conquer the tribes to the north that were oppressing the people of Israel. And he did that, right? Well, then Jonah's contemporaries come along, Amos and Hosea, and they prophesy against the evil of Jeroboam. And that's where we're going to pick up in the next couple of weeks, Amos and Hosea. But for now, sometime after Jonah told Jeroboam II that, hey, you're going to go and you're going to conquer those northern, tri northern tribes, so go. Sometime after that, God called Jonah to go to Nineveh. But Jonah didn't obey, did he? Jonah fled. And so what we see is, is that, um, that the prophets, they were called to give a specific message to a specific people at a specific place at a specific time. So why in the world would Jonah, knowing that that's his entire reason for existence, right? He's called by God to be a prophet. Why run? Well, Jonah... 
Uh, I had a little thing for you there. Sorry about that. But it's nothing you can copy down. So why, why did Jonah run? Well, who were the Ninevites? Who were the Ninevites? So that's the next question we want to ask. We know Jonah was a prophet of God that ran from God. And now we want to ask, why did he run? Well, that will be answered when we ask for the Ninevites. Now, the Ninevites, uh, the Nineveh was a city, a big city, really big city, that was the capital city of, the, of Assyria. It's modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Okay, so you got a you got an understanding of the, the place that it was. It's about 500 miles northeast of Israel. And they're mentioned in their founding, at Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. I'll read it for you. It says that Cush, which is actually, Cush went on to found modern-day Ethiopia, right? But Cush fathered Nimrod, which I was called as a child. I never, I never, I, I, it's kind of a, my dad would call me a Nimrod every now and then. I, I don't know why. But anyway, I don't think it was because I was a mighty man. But, but Nimrod was in the, in the Old Testament. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man, it says in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 10. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, which went on to be Babylon. Eric, Akkad, which was Akkadia, right? Calne in the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went into Assyria, or some of the, the King James Version says, went forth Asher, right? And he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. And so Nineveh was this huge city, it was the capital of Syria, and that time it held about 120,000 people, and it was a place that, uh, that was a really essential trade route between the Middle East and the, and the Far East. Because it, the Tiger, one of the tributaries of the Tigris River ran right through the middle of the city. And so if you wanted to get something from the Mediterranean Sea all the way across the Middle East, you had to go through Nineveh. And so Nineveh was a great cultural center, but it was also home of, one of some of the cruelest people on the earth. And when I say this, I don't say this lightly. They were, the history records them. They actually record themselves doing some of the most cruel deeds in history, such as... When they would go to a city and they would conquer it, then they would not only uh, brag and boast about raping and murdering women and young girls, but they would also take and do massive beheadings, and they would take all of those severed heads and they would put it in front of the city gate, the place where they conquered. They'd put it in front of the city gate, they'd build a mound of severed heads, and they would say, this is why you don't mess with us. And, and, and even more unspeakable things that I don't even want to say here. Okay, So we, we just get how evil... How cruel, how torturous, how murderous the Ninevites were. Now, it's not like the VeggieTales version, which says they fish slapped each other, right? That's the, that's the VeggieTales version. They try to you know, soften it and they slap each other with fish, right? That's not it. It was much, much worse. And now you get why Jonah didn't want to go. Jonah said, really, God? Those people? And he went the other way to Tarshish, which was about 2,000 miles in the opposite direction. Now, it seems like the book of Jonah was written in the upside down. Uh, I don't know why that's there, but uh, it seems like Jonah was written in the upside down because all of these different things are going to happen in Jonah where these people seem out of character. For instance, we've already seen one. You've got a prophet who rebels. Doesn't seem right. Prophets are supposed to obey God's call. 
You've got these pagan sailors that we're about to see later on in chapter 1 who actually repent. And then you've got uh, uh, the king of the most powerful city in that area who repents at the preaching of Jonah. So it just seems like things are turned topsy-turvy and, 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 and this is not the way that things should be. That's the world of Jonah. But we know that Jonah has started running from the Lord. Now, like I said, Nineveh was about 500 miles northeast of Israel, but Jonah chooses to get on a boat to go about 2,000 miles southwest to a place called Tarshish, which is in modern-day Spain. And so, uh, kind of get a, a picture of the journey here, right? So, Jonah's right here, and he just is supposed to go here to Nineveh, but instead he goes all the way over here, right, to Tarshish, or he tries to. And he boards a, a, a boat in Joppa. Literally, he commissions this boat. He takes command of it. Uh, or he hires them to take him to uh, modern-day Spain, which, is, which was a city called Tarshish. But in his sovereignty, God would not be refused because God proceeds to get Jonah's attention. And so look at verse 4 of chapter 1. But the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. These are pagan sailors. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. It's crazy right there. Once again, things don't seem as the way they should be. And so the captain came down and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So here's how bad the storm was. Once again, this is in the upside down. Jonah's asleep. But the pagan sailors recognize that this is such a bad storm, somebody must have made God real mad. And we need to figure out what, what happened, why he's so mad, because otherwise we're all going to die. And then the captain goes down to the belly of the ship and says, notice the belly of the ship, right? Captain goes down to the belly of the ship and, and sees Jonah asleep. He's like, how can you be asleep? How can you be asleep? We're all about to die. Get up and cry out to your God. And then verse 7, God Gets Jonah's attention, first of all, by the storm, second of all, by the lot that was cast. It said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Well, Jonah obviously wasn't offering up any information at the beginning. So they, they get out their little dice or whatever that they, would, uh, that they would play with, and they said, all right, you're number one, two, three, four, five, and six, if it was a modern day dice, and, uh, and we're going to roll the dice, and whoever's number gets picked, it's your fault, and we're going to deal with you then. Well, it falls to Jonah. Remember, Jonah's hired these guys to take him away, and they don't know why. They just say, hey, here's a guy with money. Let's, let's take him to where he wants to go. Well, the lot gets cast upon Jonah. Now Jonah decides to fess up to it. Look at verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And listen to Jonah's response. Verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, listen to the irony here, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Let's just pause and all sigh at the hypocrisy of Jonah. Okay, one, two, three, sigh. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? This, this hits upon the truth that we say over and over and over again. You may not always live what you profess, but you uncontrollably live what you believe. You may not always live what you profess, what comes out of your mouth, but you uncontrollably 
live what you believe. Jonah, he throws some religiosity at him. Oh, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew. And I serve the God of the, of the seas and of the dry land. He created it all. He governs it all. And they're like, okay, well, fool, what have you done? And why in the world would you try to go from, from dry land to sea to run from this God who controls all of it? It doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. And so Jonah tells them to do something that really he considers a win-win. Jonah says, hey, throw me into the sea and it'll stop raging. Throw me into the sea. What is he telling them to do? Jonah's saying, kill me because then I won't have to go to Nineveh and preach. And the storm will be finished. I'll be dead. You'll be safe. You got your money. We're all good. That's literally, I mean, that's what Jonah says. Kill me. But God gets Jonah's attention because not only did he, the storm come and then the lot got cast to him, but then a fish shows up. Now, we don't know it's a whale. Okay, The text actually just says fish in the Hebrew. But essentially, we understand that it probably was a big fish. So verse 17 the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah went from the belly of the ship to the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. And so this is a lot like, let me just, let me just draw your attention back to the book of Numbers. Because here's what's happening here. God is actually using a method of judgment to provide deliverance. Remember in the book of Numbers? when the people of Israel were just complaining over and over and over and over again, we don't have water, we don't have food, we should just go back to Egypt, let's rebel, let's overthrow Moses, let's go back to Egypt. And God sends a plague of serpents upon them. And so the people cry out, and God says, okay, I'll deliver you. And remember what he tells them to do? He tells Moses to do what? Remember the bronze serpent on the staff, and to hold it up, and everyone who looks at that serpent will be saved? So that the instrument of their judgment became the instrument of their deliverance? Well, now the instrument of Jonah's judgment, the fish, after chapter 2 when he kind of repents, also becomes the way that Jonah gets to where he's going. Because Jonah goes through and he says, okay, God, this is chapter 2 in a nutshell. Okay, God, I guess you're right. I guess I should go to the Ninevites and tell them they're about to be destroyed. And so... Fine, I'll go. And so the, the fish vomits him up onto dry land, is the way the story goes. Right? And some people say, okay, first of all, right here, you guys who believe the Bible, y'all y'all were just crazy. Because this actually couldn't happen. And you say, well, Christianity is actually based on miracles because Jesus rose from the dead. So if somebody can be raised from the dead, I don't think of you know getting swallowed by a fish and then spewed upon dry land three days later is that big of a deal, to be quite honest. And so the fish spews Jonah out of his mouth, and he gets to dry land. But here's what's funny. Guess what the word Nineveh means in Hebrew? Anybody have it in your footnotes? It means place of fish. <laughs> and so God, it's just God has a sense of humor. He's saying, Jonah, you tried to tell the sailors to kill, your, to kill you so that you could get out of this. But not only are you not getting out of it, but I'm going to get you into the belly of the fish, and he's going to spit you out on dry land so that you can go and preach in the place of the fish. And they, they think it was called the place of the fish because they worship this big, large fish god statue in the middle of it. And so Jonah, in chapter 3, beginning of chapter 3, is commissioned once again by the Lord 
Chapter 3, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah actually follows. He travels the 500-some-odd miles to Nineveh. And they say Nineveh is a city that it would take you three full days to go through. Now they say if this was the literal diameter of the city, then that's about 60 miles wide. It's a big city. But actually they say that, the, that it could mean that it would take three days for you to go through all the neighborhoods in the city because there's about 120,000 people who live there. And so that might actually be what happens, is that Jonah goes in, and it should take him three days to go and preach this message, but Jonah just goes one day in and listen to the, look at the message that he preaches. Yeah, this is the, mes- the message that he preaches in, uh, cha- in verse 4 of chapter 3. Jonah began to go into the city about going about a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now we read that, once again, if you're used to reading the book of Jonah, we read that, and we're like, okay, Jonah's been faithful. Really? I mean, really? Do, you th- do we really? I think that's what's called half-hearted obedience. The city's uh, a three days journey wide. You're going to go one day in, and then you're going to speak five words in, the, in Hebrew, and you're going to leave out critical parts like, look at, look, at what's, look at what he left out up here. There's no mention of Nineveh's sin. There's no mention of how they're going to be overthrown. There's no mention of how to respond. There's even no mention of God, the judge, right? I mean, that seems like a pretty important thing to remember to tell them. And so Jonah hasn't learned a thing. Why is Jonah so stubborn about proclaiming this message to the Ninevites? It's almost like the, it's like the people of the Bible Project call it prophetic sabotage. It's becoming very clear that Jonah cares nothing about these people repenting before God. But Jonah, in his message, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown, God kind of says, okay, Jonah, if you're going to be half-hearted about it, my purpose is to save these people. And I'm going to show you. Because the word overturned, it doesn't just mean destroyed, it can also mean transformed. (laughs) The Ninevites heard, we're about to be destroyed in judgment. But what God did is that as they repented, God transformed the entire city and they all repented. Literally, from the king on down. They even had the, the, the cattle in Nineveh put on sackcloth, which was representative of repentance. Everybody was heartbroken. They, they called this the, the largest revival of 120,000 people getting saved at one time. From the king on down, they all repented of their sin. And so Jonah, you would think, hey, Jonah's a prophet of God. Jonah should be happy about this, right? Seeing all these people repent, trust the Lord. But look at the beginning of chapter 4. Jonah has a very sad response. They repented, but verse 1 of chapter 4 says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Listen to his reasoning here. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
what is wrong with this guy? I mean, do you, do you, do you, once again, we are so familiar with the story that the weight of these words don't land on us anymore. Jonah is watching these Ninevites repent of their sin. And instead of getting excited about it and praising God and leading, leading through the streets like David with this great uh, parade for the glory of God, Jonah looks at God and says, I knew you would do this. He takes the character of God that's spoken to Moses in the book of Exodus and he throws it back in God's face. Now, once again, we've seen a lot of uh, we've talked about the, the bad side of David. We've talked about the bad side of Solomon. And I've, t- I've told you that if God wanted to use perfect people, then he's got no options, right, on this earth. And Jonah's probably the best example of it yet, because do you hear what he's saying? God, those people are not worthy of an invitation to follow you and avoid destruction. They don't deserve it. And what's implied is people like me that do. Wow. That's exactly what Jonah's saying. It even says, just kill me now, God. Kill me now. And so Jonah goes out to the edge of the city and God decides, okay, I've got one more lesson I want to teach you, Jonah. I mean, God's, once again, God's gracious. God's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we don't really see that as much as in the Ninevites, as much as we do in the life of Jonah, his prophet. Jonah goes up on a hillside and he sits there and essentially he's thinking, well, they're repenting now, but maybe in a few days, you know, they'll, uh, they'll mess up and God's going to go all Sodom and Gomorrah on them, right? He's just going to destroy them. Maybe that, and so I'm going to sit back and I'm going to watch the show. Instead of joining in with the praise, joining in with the repentance, going about a, a, a little uh, discipleship, you know, Jonah goes up on a hillside and he builds himself a little shack and he stays there. Well, the shack falls down and, uh, and God says, I've got one more lesson for him. So God uh, providentially, sovereignly says uh, that, that this tree is going to grow right behind Jonah. And it grows and these vines grow and it, cu- it makes shade for him. And it says that Jonah was gladdened, that his heart was gladdened. Look in, uh, look in verse uh, 6. I mean, look at verse, uh, yeah, verse 6. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant. It might come up over Jonah. It might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But God's not out to increase Jonah's comfort. God's out to, to, to help Jonah see something. And so the next day, God appointed, verse 7, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that the plant withered. And we think, God, that sounds awfully cruel. But remember, God's trying to help his people. God, God wants us to see his character in these stories. And so God's trying to show Jonah something that's very important. And Jonah, once again, because the, the, God appointed a scorching east wind, verse 8, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked once again, let me die. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So Jonah... Jonah's mad about the plant, right? Mad about the plant. The plant was there. The worm came, killed the plant. I'm mad again. Jonah has, he, he, is, he would fit in so well in our day with this emotional worldview. That's what he's got. He's just driven by feelings. The sun's beating down on me. These people are repenting. I don't like them. 
The worm came, destroyed my plant, and God basically looks at Jonah and says, so you're telling me, this is how the book ends, you're telling me that you're going to be upset, you're going to be happy when, when you've got shade, comfort, and you're going to be mad when you don't have shade and comfort, but you're going to tell me that I'm not good when these people that I've watched, that I formed in their mother's womb, these Ninevites who have lived opposed to my glory, you're going to be mad at me when I decide to show mercy on them. And we really, I wish we had more to the story. I wish it would say that God, you know, took Jonah behind another woodshed and, and whipped his tail or something. I mean, because that's what Jonah deserves. Jonah is, Jonah is wicked. And let me just close by sharing with you about what that means for us. Every year at the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur, the book of Jonah is read. And that in the congregation, as the book of Jonah is being read, when they come to the conclusion, the entire congregation stands to their feet and in unison, this is how they respond. You know what they say? They hear the book of Jonah and this is what they say. In unison they say, we are Jonah. We are Jonah. I am Jonah. That book's talking about me. And listen, there are so many ways that you can preach the book of Jonah. I listened to tons of sermons this week. Listen, I, I've got, I, 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 could, I could just write on and on and on about the kind of application that people have made from the book of Jonah. But do you want to know the message of the book of Jonah? The message of the book of Jonah is that are you okay with the fact that God loves his enemies? Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemies? We are Jonah. Now remember at the end of, end of last week when we talked about 2 Kings and I said, so where are the prophets today? And we made the application, we're the people, we're the prophets. We're the people who have the message of God. We've been called to a specific time. We've been called to a specific place. We've been called to a specific group of people. God is wanting to use every single one of you to use your gifts, to use your skills, to use your passions, to use your abilities, to reach the people that are around you. But the problem is, is that we've seen that truth from last week, but we are Jonah. We're Jonah. Because we choose to close our mouth and go about our business acting as if God hasn't blessed us to hear the message of life and yet we don't speak it to other people. We don't live it out and invite other people to hear and to walk with this God of Israel who sent Jesus. You see, we are Jonah. And you say, well, Ryan, that doesn't really fit me. I love the people that are around me. I pray for them. I want them to come to know Jesus. I talk to them about it whenever I can. I pray that that's you. I hope that that's you. I really do. But I'd be willing to bet that there are some people in this world that you're a Jonah to. Does it make you uncomfortable that God loves Muslims in this world? Does it make you uncomfortable that God has been moving among 
the Muslims of this world in the past six or seven years to where you've had thousands upon thousands of them leave Islam and come to know Jesus as your Savior? And yet you have loved ones and family members that have rejected Christ over and over and over. Does that make you uncomfortable? You say, God, why won't you move here like you're moving there? They're not worthy, but people who look like me, we're the ones who deserve it. This is America. Christian nation. The people around me, we're worthy of it. But not them. You say, well, I wouldn't even say that that's me. You know, when my parents are going to Vietnam, I, I was sharing with some people that they were going to Vietnam, and they, they looked at me and they said, why would you want to go to Vietnam? Do you know how many thousands upon thousands of people from my generation were killed on Vietnamese soil for fighting a war over there? Yes, I do. But if God's called somebody to go, then that obviously reveals his heart that they need Jesus and that people are going to be saved there. Is that okay with you? I mean, really. Can God get your permission? Would that be okay? Would it really be okay if, if church after church after church in America dies because God, they, they're not welcoming God there. They're actually worshiping their own tradition. Would it be okay if God moved among South Korean believers so that they could go as missionaries into North Korea so that maybe one day that the, that the North Korean dictator, they prayed for him enough that maybe he opens up to allowing Christians in the nation. You know what? I read that headline this morning that that's exactly what's happened. Is that okay with us? Have you prayed for Kim Jong-un? If he got saved, would that be okay with you? You see, we're Jonah. We don't want to admit it. But we are Jonah, friends. There's just one more thing that I would like to say to you that's an obvious conclusion of Jonah's story. And it really fits in well last week in saying that you're the prophets called to a specific time, a specific place, a specific people. And so go into your workplace and take captive those moments for the glory of God. Here's the obvious implication from the book of Jonah. Don't try to run from that calling. <laughs> it's useless. The good news is, is that God wants to use you, even if you don't want to be used by God. <laughs> the good news is, is that God has put you right where you are to be used by Him. And if you don't want to be used by Him, I don't know what the belly of the whale will look like for you. <laughs> But just follow the Lord. It's better than the belly of the whale. Because you never know. The Ninevites might just repent. Would that be okay? If the people around you, if they repented of their sin, would that be okay? I, I hope so. Discern your calling. <laughs> be aware of any boats that you've hired to try to take you away from it. Because the people of Nineveh, they're waiting for you. And they might just repent. 
And so I just take you back to what I said last week. What's your calling? Where has God put you? Who are the people that God's given you influence over? Who, who are the people that God has put you around that you have to work around? That you, you, there's, really no, there's really no other place that you're going to go. The people that God brings into your midst every single week, guess who brought them there? God did. Don't run from the calling. Don't run from the message. And definitely don't think that they're unworthy. Because the Bible tells us that we are all unworthy. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That it was because of His great love for us. Yes, Southern Americans. Yes, uh, Arab, uh, Arab men and women, boys and girls. It was because of us that God sent Jesus to die on the cross so that we could be saved from our sins. And one day we will go and we will, we will be before the throne of of Almighty God where every tribe and every tongue and every skin color will be represented there because they all heard the message of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they all responded in faith. Every single tribe, every single tongue that's there. And so we have no right. We have no right to determine on this earth who should hear the gospel and who shouldn't. We are Jonah, but let's not be an unwilling prophet. Let us go into our places of calling and let us speak boldly about the love and mercy of God, that He can forgive any sin, that He can, he can restore any life, and that He would use us to do it. That's my prayer. Let's pray.